This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. Hello, this is John here. David is off this week. This is a special episode brought to you by a partnership between O'Reilly and ThingWorks, a PTC company. I'm recording this from the LiveWorks event in Boston. That's PTC's big conference about connected devices and the Internet of Things. And this year, augmented reality is really hot. It's everywhere. I'm sitting down with Steve Gee. He's PTC's Senior Vice President for R&D in the office of the CTO, or his job title for short, Mad Scientist. Welcome, Steve. Thank you. So you've been involved with VR and AR for a long time, and I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what VR felt like back in the early 90s. So in the early 90s, I mean, the hardware was very young. I mean, we were involved with this before you could even buy graphics cards. We were having to build graphics cards. We were having to build machines for graphics cards. There were no stereo computers, so we had to build stereo graphics. We had to build tracking systems. We had to build displays, or in some case, buy displays. Uh, we ended up making our own head mounts. Um, the, the feeling was one of extreme hype. People were expecting a lot of from reality, from the virtual reality um, side of things. And it was well ahead of its time. So the hardware was slow. The graphics were very low quality. The sense of immersion was actually very good mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because you know we were able to get a lot of performance out of of these machines. I mean, we were custom building microprocessors to do this stuff. Um, but like I said, people's expectations were that the graphics would be realistic, and mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. just never going to happen in those times. So we moved away from that space because we couldn't actually deliver to what people people were expecting or wanting mm-hmm, regardless mm-hmm. of the price and people were paying a lot of money for <laughs> for systems that you know could could do a lot right but still right. nowhere near what they wanted to do and, and you know these are graphic supercomputers but still people were focusing on the reality side of virtual reality and, and it's still you know it's nowhere near there yet right right and so did people want to use VR for entertainment and, and games, or was, was the idea to take it off into you know industrial and commercial applications? We, we started in industrial commercial applications. In fact, we started with a robotics company, and we were looking at basically um, remote servicing um, and maintenance operation in nuclear power stations. So hmm. it was looking at sort of putting the human operator into dangerous uh, environmental spaces where they couldn't actually do their job. So they're putting a robot in there instead, and this was a robot with a, a full... Um, six degree of freedom tracked head that was mm. linked to your virtual reality display so you saw what the robot saw oh wow in real time in real time and and this is 1990 <laughs> um so we've in fact we focus most of our company on industrial applications we 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 saw a few of our customers get into the entertainment space uh-huh. and we had um competitors in the entertainment space so we decided that we would stay out from that space yeah 
and we would stick in the industrial space. And we worked with many, many, you know, aerospace and automotive companies throughout the years in, in what were true sort of um, bleeding edge VR and anything from immersive VR through to sort of cave type mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, immersion. Um, we were involved in that sort of pretty much through to the late 90s. So today, it, it feels to me sometimes like uh, the AR and VR worlds are divided into games and entertainment and everyone else, that these are kind of separate disciplines, separate approaches to it. Is that something that, that you see as well? Yes. Yeah. And, and I don't know whether that's a perception, you know, that's put forward by, you know, the press and 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 people who are getting into this space. I mean, clearly from a commercial perspective, you know, there's an awful lot of money in games. And so a lot of people will, will look to entertainment, not just games, but generally, you know, broader entertainment. People will look towards that as being a route into this market. But there's a lot of interest, as you're seeing here, there's a lot mm-hmm. of interest in the industrial market um, for both augmented reality and virtual reality. Now, for listeners who might not be intimately familiar with, with these terms AR and VR, augmented reality and virtual reality, What's the fundamental difference between those two? And also sometimes you hear mixed reality. Right. So, yeah, how I would describe the difference, virtual reality for me is where you are completely generating a new world. Um, It can be a physical world that we're familiar with. It could be this room that we're sitting in. But everything with inside of this room is generated in the computer. I've mm-hmm. typically got a, a headset on that is blanking all the space around me, so I'm sitting in a, in a darkened space. <laughs> but the computer's generating everything. It's generating the sound. It's generating the visuals. Augmented reality, you know, the augmented means to add. So we're adding to true reality. So typically your headset, the device that you're looking through is see-through. Mm-hmm. And we are trying to add to the scene, not trying to replace it, but add to the scene. And an example would be like the HoloLens. So the HoloLens is a great example of that where you can see through the device um, and we will add, you know, graphical information, whether it be 3D objects or text. We're Mm -hmm. we're putting information into this space. We're augmenting, we're annotating what Mm -hmm. we're able to see. You are constrained then because you obviously have some physical reality that you're trying to work with. <laughs> right. The, the, you know, many of the use cases that we're looking at benefit from that because what you're actually trying to show people is information that they can't necessarily see uh, in the physical domain. And then mixed reality is is a bit of both, really. You know, the, And I think where we will see these devices going is that there'll be a blend between these pure, darkened virtual reality headsets and the augmented mm-hmm. headsets where you'll be able to switch to both. So it's effectively like mm-hmm. closing the blinds mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and suddenly the room goes dark and now we're in a fully immersive world. And from a technological perspective, augmented reality sounds like it's considerably harder to implement than virtual reality. I wouldn't say it's harder, it's different. Uh-huh. You, you have different constraints. One of, you know, one of the problems with augmented reality is that you are having to deal with the real world environment around you. So there are a number of sort of curveballs that are throwing at you just by real world physics. So lighting mm-hmm. is, is, a, is a great one that causes mm. all sorts of problems that you wouldn't believe. Um, in virtual reality, because you can literally just stand inside a box, inside a room, and yeah. it's a much cleaner environment, you don't have so many problems with the tracking, but then you've got to generate the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's where you slip down this slope again of people expecting more from the reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're faced with much greater sort of content creation problems than you are with the augmented reality where you're standing in front of the physical world which has created the content for you. Right, right. So different challenges in different spaces. One of the things that struck me about augmented reality that I hadn't understood before the last few months when I've started um, working on this area at O'Reilly myself is that a lot of applications are available already 
for mobile phones and other devices that have a camera in them. So a lot of people think about augmented reality. I even use the example of the HoloLens. They think of a headset that you put on. It's very sophisticated, very powerful, um, has a lot of new kind of approaches to, to reality in it. Uh, but, but there are a lot of people demonstrating apps here that sit in a phone and you point it at, uh, say, a piece of machinery and, and help a technician understand what's in it. And this is in everyone's hands now. That's right. And yes, I mean, it's, it's very available to, through your standard mobile phone. Um, you know, there are cases where you can even have static cameras. You don't have to necessarily have a mobile device. Hmm. But, um, so you would, for instance, take a photo of a piece of machinery and then uh, see it annotated with labels or something right. like that. Or have a, have a fixed camera on the ceiling and, mm -hmm. and annotating the world underneath. And so the, the, the image can be live, but it's being annotated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What you're seeing a lot of here are use cases where people are using a device which itself is portable. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the use cases are around that portability. So it's being able to approach something and to be able to augment it and move around it and gain some value from being able to move around it. And that, you mm -hmm. know, that's, that's an important part of it. But yes, it's very available now. Most modern smartphones are, are more than capable of, of running quite good uh, augmented reality experiences. When I look at a lot of the examples um, at a place like, like Liveworks here, what starts to emerge as the vision, I think, is that... Uh, augmented reality can sort of replace this model of a of a control room which is separate from the environment uh, and and turn it instead into just uh, information available through a device as you walk through so uh, you know you have machinery or, or endpoints sensors that are connected to an IOT platform uh, and then the the data is streaming off of that into anywhere you want it to stream rather than just into a, a conventional sort of dial in a control room. Yeah, and, and that's key. It's, it's, it's information when and where you need it. Mm -hmm. The control room doesn't go away because there's a lot of benefits of having you know centralized control and using large high-resolution displays to sort of see very detailed information. Mm -hmm. But when you're standing in the middle of the field and you know this machine is broken in front of you, mm -hmm. you, you, you perhaps want to see information that's just not there. A lot of you know industrial machinery doesn't have any user interface controls mm -hmm. on it. They don't necessarily have valves or gauges or dials on them. Um, and so that ability to project the data onto the machine when and where you where you are standing is is, is quite powerful. Mm -hmm. I think of uh, you know the Internet of Things as being about adding endpoints to software in the physical world. You have some software, it's in the cloud, uh, and you add endpoints like sensors and actuators and other things that can kind of translate between physical and virtual. And augmented reality almost bypasses that. You're just you're keeping everything strictly in the in the virtual world and applying it as a as a virtual overlay. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good way of thinking of it as an as an overlay. It's it's adding value to inf and showing information that you can't necessarily see. That's how I see it. It's it mm -hmm. the the real value comes in being able to display sort of metaphysical data where you know, there is no obvious way of displaying it in a in the physical world, it's mm -hmm. it's it's fluid flowing inside a pipe. You can't see it. Yeah. Whereas we can augment it, so you can see it, and it just adds a way that a an operator or a service technician can gain more uh, insight into what's actually happening mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they're looking at this data again. The sensor saying, you know, the pressure is X and the temperature is Y. Well, what does that really mean? Right. It means that the fluid is boiling inside exactly. this piece of machinery. Was, and if we could show you that it was boiling, you would probably very quickly pick up, okay, you know, it shouldn't be boiling, yeah. therefore there's a problem. So, yeah. so showing people information in a way that they can comprehend it quickly is where you really see augmented reality adding a lot of value. 
So uh, let's talk about some of those applications, putting aside the the things from sort of entertainment and games, which are, I think, well enough understood by the public. And also, I don't have fun. Uh, let's talk about some industrial and commercial applications. What are you seeing that really takes full advantage of augmented reality at a fundamental level? Let's start with some of the operational cases. Being able to approach a complex piece of machinery. Um, you may be very familiar with a bit of this complex piece of machinery, but it's a it's a closed box, probably quite literally. It's made of steel, and you know there's some complex gases or fluids flowing through the inside of it. The ability to project into the space what is happening on that machine, whether it is just to be able to see a, a gauge, a, a numerical mm -hmm. value that tells you that it's good or bad, but being able to see deeper than that, being able to see fluid flowing through it, or or some other operational characteristics of that machine, that's huge because. Everybody talks about how you know the operators understand how these machines work, but they don't. They know how to operate them. They don't know how to work. <laughs> and so being able to help that operator be able to get the most out of being able to use that machine. So mm -hmm. a great example is the one we showed yesterday, which is the, the startup procedure mm -hmm. on, on the, the generator. You might think, okay, well, if I start generators up every day, I know how they start up. But in this case, it's a rental case. So mm -hmm. every user, every probably week is a new user. They never use the generator. So how do you show them the correct sequence to start up the generator? That's a great way of saying, well, here's a 10-page manual. Go read through it. Mm -hmm. Or here's an AR experience that shows you in three steps how to set it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So simple cases like that where you can take people through what is an important procedural order mm -hmm. and show them in a very, very visual and, and easy to comprehend way. So it becomes an entry point that really changes the uh, a lot of the calculus of human resources, of, of training, of the expense of maintaining a technical workforce. That's right. And, and, and accessibility. So it mm -hmm. makes it a lot easier for people to pick up very quickly what it is they need to do tied mm -hmm. in with IoT and you can then sort of say, well, I've got to do it in a certain sequence and the system will tell you if you're doing it wrong. So there's a bit of training and that can be added there, but the mm -hmm. system is also helping. Any other examples? So that uh, we go from operational into service. So another you know, a great killer use case for this stuff is, is being able to show people um, how to diagnose a problem and how to fix a problem. Mm -hmm. So again, back to our fluid example, you know, the thing's boiling. So, you know, okay, well, why is it boiling? Show me, mm -hmm. show me where this is coming from and being able to trace back through a complicated system and follow uh, a route of, of where this might be coming from. It could be an electrical current or it could be some fluid. Mm -hmm. um, being able to again show the user things that they don't necessarily, they can't necessarily see. Mm -hmm but be able to point them in the right direction to help them diagnose a problem. And then when you find the problem, okay, well, how do I fix it? You know, how do yeah. I get to this? Yeah. So, okay, yeah. you know, I can see these four screws here. Are these the right four screws I need to undo? Mm -hmm. And then the final piece of that is, okay, well, I've now taken this part off. Mm -hmm. What do mm -hmm. I replace it with? Yeah, it, 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 it reminds me of the, uh, when I was a kid, I was a huge fan of this PBS series that chronicled the development of the Boeing 777 uh, airliner. And it, it suggested, and I'm not sure that this, is really the case that that was the first uh, airliner that Boeing had had designed entirely with modern CAD software, and uh, that it was able to to allow the engineers to see conflicts, structural conflicts, things like two pipes from different systems colliding in ways that they had never been able to see it before. So it wasn't just that there was a an algorithmic process of seeing a collision; it was that uh, it actually gave the engineers a better understanding of how it was all going to fit together and and replaced a really onerous process where they used to 
actually mock up the inside of the plane. And then engineers from different departments, you know, from the HVAC uh, team and from the lighting team would actually get in there and stretch their conduits and and uh, and ducts all over the place and see if they collided. That's right. And, and, and we see a lot of people looking at that. And that's another good use for virtual reality. That's a great use case for where virtual reality comes in, where you can actually simulate an entire machine or vehicle without ever having to construct it and then go through that collaborative case. So we've had some use cases with our users in the past working on very, very large machinery where it's very similar problems to the aircraft. They typically mm -hmm. work in zones because it's you know, large, complicated machines that are brought together at the last minute. And and there are always issues with how uh -huh. those zones join together. And, and like you say, you have pipes running through doors uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and cables running over where the pipes were because the cables were laid before the pipes. and Impedance mismatches. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, and being able to s sort of simulate and, and visualize that whole system prior to it being constructed is is huge for, for in the you know, pre-manufacturing manufacturing stage but we've also been talking to customers recently where the systems are being manufactured and then they're being shipped out they're very large mm -hmm. and they're too large to actually manufacture and deliver so they're actually um, completed on site mm -hmm. so basically mm -hmm. what you get is a kit apart but Things like wind wind turbines. Wind turbines and, and very, very large mining vehicles and so mm -hmm, on. And, mm -hmm. and so having the engineers be in a remote field site, be able to put together the machine mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. per spec, you know, these are people not working in the factory. They're basically building a kit apart. So being able to give them some digital 3D instructions that show them, how do I put this together? And then it comes onto the servicing. Okay, well, how was this machine put together? Because, you know, yesterday <laughs> the guy ran the pipe over the top of the of this particular uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, thing. And, and tomorrow on the next machine that they're working on, they decided to go underneath. Right, right, right. Okay, so how do I um, track that? And how do I make sure that, you know, I know when I come to maintain it that I'm actually following the same instruction because mm -hmm. I look at the machine and it looks different to me. I don't mm -hmm. see that pipe mm -hmm. anymore. And maybe the uh, transmission factory upgraded the design, whereas the uh, chassis factory didn't. And so you have a new part number over here and an old part number over here. And you have to adapt and realize which part came from which batch. That's and right. Sort of, yeah. This seems like the case for combining it with PLM software. That's right. Yes, management. exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so being able to uh, scan these parts, so, you know, you the the fundamental underlying technology for this computer vision and so being able to use the computer to recognize these parts and be able to sort of tie that into the plm systems that you can then say okay well i know that this part has these particular variants and maybe i can replace it with this one mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's um, another use where we can see this this technology coming in is it's basically maintaining products and speaking of the way that that computers can recognize different products um all over the place uh, here at LiveWorks, we see these little, uh, they're not QR codes, they're hexagonal thing codes, um, and they uh, can be picked up very easily by AR software. So let's talk about the, the modules that go into kind of a modern AR app. Uh, considering something that's, you know, pretty easy to run on a mobile phone, nothing terribly sophisticated, uh, do these apps require a great deal of low-level engineering to develop now? A lot of, you know, fundamental geometry or uh, has the process gotten much easier is it a is it more of a you know a, a plug and play process now the device hardware itself obviously helps a lot and so the the technologies you know inside the mobile devices are, are significantly better than they were before so you know the, the cpus the graphical gpus these these provide the, the you know the capabilities the mechanisms for these modules to run but you know what are the components? The components for augmented reality are 
the ability to first of all recognize where you are to so to track mm -hmm. so if we think of the, these codes these view these view marks these these thin codes this is a it's a it's a pattern it has um a number of bits in it so that it basically can store a code and it's a unique mm -hmm. code so the, the reason why you've seen so many of them is that they're all unique and and so they they can point to different experiences we can tie a thin code to a particular instance of a particular machine so mm -hmm. your microphone could have a different thin code to my microphone because mm -hmm. they are different microphones, even though they're exactly the same brand of microphone, they are different. Mm -hmm. So what the code gives us is two things. It gives us the ability to identify exactly which item it is, which is important from an IoT perspective because your signal is different to my signal. Mm -hmm. So we want to be able to know that the two are different. But they also give us a positional um, cue. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they actually should tell us where in space the item is because these these thin codes are not symmetrical they're not radially symmetrical they're not they're, radially symmetrical. that's yeah. correct yes and so we know exactly the 3d position and orientation of that code and from that that we can then start building up this 3d map of the world and we can start augmenting it because we can we know we have an origin mm -hmm. which is the code and we know where everything is relative to that origin so that that ability to first of all recognize and then to track from where you are is one of the most fundamental components of AR. Mm -hmm. And and that is obviously running on this, the CPUs and the GPUs inside this device. It's a, it's a very graphical process because it's using the camera from the mm -hmm. device to do this recognition. It's, it's looking at predicting where things are in space as you move. So there's a lot of image and computer recognition going on in the device purely just to work out where we think we are in space. Mm -hmm. The other component is then the augmentation. So it's all the computer graphic that we're actually adding into the scene. So again, we're using the GPUs and the CPUs to now draw more information into space. Mm -hmm. And then finally, of course, we want to augment that with information that we might be getting from our IoT systems. So we're using the networking capabilities of the device to go off and talk to ThingWorks or whatever is delivering the information that is coming from the IoT systems. So these kinds of AR applications are approachable at a very high level to developers who don't have a great deal of low-level AR experience. Um, what are the kinds of tools that they would look for? So an example of that might be a tool that we launched today called Vivoria Studio, which is a, a web application that allows you to author a very, very high-level scenes to bring in high geometry, add some widgets onto your display for buttons and, and, and textual values, whether they be in 3D or in 2D. And then publish that to a, a mobile application, which mm -hmm. can host multiple experiences. So it's one application that runs on your device, and it can download based on the thin codes that you scan. It will download an experience for it. And so, in terms of the difference between um, you know this ubiquitous kind of AR that we're seeing all over the place here, that's clearly gotten much easier to implement, and the kind of AR that that you would have seen in the '90s, what is it that's enabled this this ubiquity? Is it the inexpensive smartphone components? The you know, advances in uh, computer vision, uh, connectivity, what's kind of the, or, or all three? All three. Uh, you know, clearly, the technology has moved on you know, leaps and bounds over just those 20 years. I mean, it's you know, exponential growth and, and, and exponential decrease in cost mm -hmm. is also important with this. So, you know, the devices are way more affordable, they're way more ubiquitous, they're hugely powerful. And that really enables this to run on, on, on virtually any device. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's moved on is, of course, the, the technologies and the ubiquity of the types of displays and user interfaces that are used to construct the experiences. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was very difficult to actually construct both the, the, the CAD data itself mm -hmm. in a form that was usable at the time, 
Um, whereas now that's very easy to both model it and also to to turn it into a hmm. a form that is performant that will run on these devices. Interesting. So so true low level advancements in in CAD geometry and and that software and, and the ability to yes to process that CAD geometry into a form that is usable and 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 recognizable uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. and then obviously air connectivity. So you know, way back in our in our days, we were we thought we were advanced by using an ISDN line. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and, and now, of course, you know you've got cellular you know, 4G on your on your on your device. So uh-huh. you seem to have infinite bandwidth. Although you know, I can tell you, you you don't when you start dealing with some of the models <laughs> that we have. We we are still sort of very bandwidth constrained. Yeah, yeah. But but and those are some of the challenges that we still have to face. It's it's actually very difficult to download you know, mm-hmm. a, a large tractor and get it onto your mobile device. So we have to right. do a lot of processing. But again, the the processing power is again hugely um, ubiquitously available. Whether it's cloud processing power or just even your desktop computer is an extremely powerful machine. So being mm-hmm. able to to churn through data and turn it into a form that's usable. Yeah. Is is much cheaper and faster to do, and the algorithms, of course, have, have always matured. Yeah, so yeah. it's much more capable, and it, we're not hand creating data anymore. We're able to take original CAD geometry that's used in manufacturing and use that in an augmented experience, which is which is very powerful for you know the the manufacturers and the people who are building these products because mm-hmm. they've invested a lot of time and energy and IP into these products. Mm-hmm. And they mm-hmm. want to be able to reuse it. They don't want to recreate information. Just the amount of CAD data that's available through uh, vendors and, and retailers like DigiKey or McMaster Car is astonishing now. If you if you go on DigiKey and buy a transformer, there's usually a, a CAD file corresponding to it in a handful of formats. You can um, design an enclosure that has exactly the right hole patterns in it without ever having seen the transformer and right. have that manufactured before you ever get it. Or from McMaster, you know exactly sort of what configuration the, the blade you're buying or the, the raw stock comes in. So you can you can kind of do all of your planning virtually now before you even get to the, the physical stage of it and then continue to have a, a virtual representation of it that, that lives on in the form of augmented reality. That's correct, yes. So in order to start, you know, developing AR applications, do developers need to understand the fundamentals of, of geometry and how to take advantage of a GPU, or or has it gotten easy? It, it's gotten a lot easier. So you can start today with much higher level tools. So you can start today with a a sort of a user interface that allows you to drag in a model that you've got from one of these sites or your own CAD model. You can bring this into an into an authoring environment. You can position it in space. You know, in the tools that we have, you can put one of these view marks, and so you can you can now attach it to your physical geometry, and you hit the publish button, and it downloads onto your app, and away you go. Mm-hmm. So that's a very high level. You don't really need to understand 3D. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just basically have to understand how to pull these pieces together and 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 go through the motions of publishing it. And at the simplest level, it's not even programming, right? There, there's no programming involved. Just to get some geometry up into space is zero programming. Uh-huh. At all. Uh-huh. But then the next steps is you know, user interface tools that we've developed that allow you to start adding some interactivity. So buttons that allow you to mm-hmm. you know, touch things to start making things move. So you can start adding animations and start making adding mm-hmm. some value and some interest into your application mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and the sky's the limit as to how far you want to go so we're not going to stop that person who wants to get, go down onto the gpu right, right. and do this stuff um 
there's other technologies and there are SDKs and tools that will allow you to go off and build that because yeah. we can't predict what people want to do. And certainly there are certain cases where people are going to try and push different machines and different devices in, in ways that um, we can't control or, or want to control because they're, they're, they're different to how we expect people to be using our software. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so of Euphoria, which is PTC's... Uh main AR engine has an API that's implemented in both Unity, which is a, a GUI, you know, drag and drop position the camera with your mouse kind of environment, as well as in, in more sophisticated uh, software development. That's right. Yes. You, you can, you can develop this yourself in, you know, in, in a, a software IDE tool like, you know, Xcode or Visual Studio on, you know, whatever platform is your choice. Um, mm -hmm. You can use it inside a higher level engine like Unity. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So looking toward the future, you know, we've, we've started to see the HoloLens uh, developer kits ship. Um, a couple of really popular uh, VR headsets, the HTC Vive and the, the Oculus Rift are shipping this summer. So the hardware for the headsets are really just starting to get into people's hands. Where do you see uh, AR going with respect to the hardware over the next few years? Are we going to still see it mostly on mobile devices or is everyone going to be walking around with helmets in two years? <laughs> Make a prediction. <laughs> I don't think everybody's going to be walking around with headsets in the next two years. I think we're going to see a lot more of them. I think uh -huh. we're, going, we're going to see the existing devices advance very quickly. Um, there are there are limitations with, with the current implementations, um, which will change. Um, the Again, we're back down to the, the, the rate of progress of, of the technology underneath, so the, the, the speed that the GPUs and the CPUs are moving, that's one thing. Batteries are a huge problem. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so battery life uh, is, is going to be a significant um, limiting factor until you know, those problems are sorted. Um, the displays and, and the optics are, are very important, particularly for, for you know, wearable, mm -hmm. eye-wearable devices. And I, I think there's a lot of scope for improvement there. There. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're going to see over the next couple of years those problems being addressed, not saying fixed, but being uh -huh, addressed. Uh -huh. uh, and that will certainly help the ubiquity of, of these devices. I think they'll become more comfortable to where mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the displays will be um, wider and broader so you'll be able to see more. I think that's a, a, one comment that a lot of people make at the moment is you know, the, 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 the field of view, the amount of immersion that you get is, is, is quite limited. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you can deal with that today. You can actually build applications that uh, celebrate that. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> and and if, you, if you live within the constraints that the device has, you, you know, devices like the HoloLens are perfectly usable today. Yeah. Yeah, um, it just it, might remind you from time to time to turn so that something is within your field of view. That's right, and but in many cases, you know, with some of the use cases that we talked about before, you as the user probably typically know where issues are, so you'll mm -hmm. be looking that way. But yes, again, you can build the user interface to help the user mm -hmm. um, navigate. Sometimes we call AR as being assisted reality, which is you actually are using the computer to say, "Hey, look left." Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And that's another important factor with this is that it's not just visual. Yeah, yeah. There are sort of acoustic and, and 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 other forms other tactile forms that we could um be looking at as well be mm -hmm. well beyond mm -hmm. sort of visual devices yeah the audio strikes me as something that really uh changes how intuitive uh, a vr or ar environment feels that's if right if I mean, you have a headset on and you can hear the person who's just off to your left speaking to you from your left 
totally changes the experience. A, a great one that I, I, I use is you put people in an industrial environment when they're standing in, in a show hall like this, all that you can hear is voices and, and, and noise. It doesn't feel real. If you actually mm -hmm. put a pair of headphones on them and make it sound like it's a noisy factory floor, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you'll instantly add to the immersive feel. They really do feel comfortable. It's yeah. you know, your brain is getting multiple signals. It's um, like I said, the visuals aren't aren't all of it. So yeah. the audio and then and, and the touch as well. Touch is a, as an important one. It's, it's, that's probably the most difficult problem to solve. Huh. Are people working on that? I, I remember a, a while ago, people thought that we would be wearing gloves that give you some sort of you know haptic I, feedback. I, I I remember them very well, <laughs> and and we had some great. There, there were some great ideas. And again, this is back in the nineties. Tiny little balloons that blew up in, in huh. and, and touched your fingerprints, and and uh -huh. it worked really well. Uh -huh. A fantastic uh -huh. feeling of touch. I saw some stuff a year ago, which is using. Um, it's an acoustic solution. Huh. So um, it's basically using many, many tiny little acoustic trans transducers, which are basically pumping a, a sound wave uh -huh. where the interference pattern touches your hand and you can feel bubbles popping. It's astonishing. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's yeah. again, you know, very, very early technology, right. but, but, but when you sort of see the visuals of the bubbles popping and you feel it touching your hand, you go, yes, I can feel those bubbles popping. So, yeah, yeah. So these these are where you know, the real interest is. That's where I see a huge amount of interest in just how do you add all of those senses together yeah. and do so in a way where you're not sort of you know tangled up in a million cables, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which somewhat destroys the immersion experience when you trip over over your <laughs> and land <laughs> right, on your face, right. or when you have to use it inside an enclosure that keeps you from uh, falling on the stairs exactly, or something like that. Right. Yeah, I mean this kind of. Uh, thought of, of adding haptic feedback and sound really reinforces the idea that underlying the AI, there has to be a really sophisticated fundamental model of what it is. Right? That's right, yes. It's not just a bunch of surfaces that you've defined. You now have to have the model understand what, what something is made of so that it can feel properly and uh, what something sounds like when you hit it so that it can sound right. And the physics of it, how it looks, how the light behaves, how, whether it's solid. And, and, and these are some of the, you know, the real difficult problems to solve mm -hmm. is how mm -hmm. do I stop somebody walking through a physical wall if I want to? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And sometimes it's quite nice in virtual reality to be able to walk through a physical wall. Yeah. But also yeah. people people want both at the same time. I want to be able to walk through this wall and do something. But then I also want to be able to pick up this solid object and move it around. Yeah, yeah. And and those two are completely orthogonal <laughs> to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and difficult problems to solve because you know now you're Superman, nothing weighs anything. Right, right. You need uh, a dip switch on the side of your headset to switch right. back and forth. Yeah. So, so what have what have you seen on the horizon in terms of uh, ways of regulating that kind of space, um, telling you that you're bumping into a wall, or uh, or warning you perhaps before you. Uh, fall down the stairs in real life. So, so a great example available now is I think they call it the chaperone system for Vive, which basically puts up a, a false wall when you're approaching what are the hmm. physical walls of the tracks uh, environment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that works really well because you can basically walk towards a wall and suddenly a wall appears. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and it's fantastic. You basically find yourself not bumping into walls anymore. So right, it doesn't right. stop you tripping over the cables. Nobody solved that problem yet. But So does the Vive have a stereoscopic camera in it then that's keeping track of obstacles in your surroundings? No, the the... Because they are they they know where the headset is within the volume of the space. Uh -huh. They know when you're hitting the edge of the volume of the space. So they simply huh. they they do also have a camera in the Vive, and so they yeah. have a way of actually switching the camera on so that you suddenly see through. So this way you get into enter that mixed reality mm -hmm. space where mm -hmm. they will blend what you are physically seeing outside 
with the virtual space that you're seeing inside so that again you can see the wall approaching that might be a good solution to sort of seeing yourself falling down the stairs interesting yeah you're snapped back to reality you're, you're brought back to reality that's right they bring yeah, you yeah. back into your field of view because you're in you're, you're in danger so yeah, right 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 so time to get out of that virtual world and get back into the real <laughs> world for a second before you break your neck right 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 so at the moment uh VR headsets and in particular AR headsets are expensive. Um, they're they're best applied in certain uh, fields where people have thought through applications very well. So it seems like the the idea for the time being is that your uh, workplace would issue you a headset for some period of time. You go to work and you put it on for a little while. Do you see a future where maybe a bit like the iPhone when it came out and everyone showed up at work with their devices, where people might buy you know a headset that can be used for a variety of different things, say gaming at home and productivity at work, and, and start to walk around with a headset on most of the day? I don't see them walking around with a headset on most of the day, but I do definitely see people buying their own device and bringing it to work. I see people using a headset for many, many different applications, whether it be entertainment or business. Mm -hmm. I'm mm -hmm. still not convinced that everybody's going to be walking around with a headset until they solve some of the fundamental optical problems mm -hmm. and, and it turns to what you and I are doing, which is wearing a pair of spectacles. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Then people won't be too worried about it because there's a huge sort of social right. issue with wearing these devices, whether right. it be people laughing at you because you kind of do look a bit dorkish wearing this sort of <laughs> thing. And and they do obscure some of your field of vision. So sometimes you find yourself bumping into things as you're wearing these things because they are quite yeah. cumbersome. But as the technology moves forwards mm -hmm. and, and those mechanical and, and electrical and optical problems are, are overcome, mm -hmm. we will find that the devices will get smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where you won't actually be able to distinguish them from you know, current means for you know, amending or augmenting people's vision, <laughs> which is a pair of glasses. Right, right. And so people will not then feel so self-conscious wearing them. And that's a huge problem we see today when people try this stuff. They think, hey, this is great. I want to try this out. Yeah. And then they see the video of themselves that their friends took afterwards. And they, <laughs> and they think, oh, man, I look stupid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, when you're inside and immersed, you don't feel stupid. And right, so it's just right. getting over that, that hurdle of people feeling that they're different. Right, right. Yeah, there's a strange uh, social aspect to it that's often been remarked on, especially with, with VR, where you, you see nothing of your surroundings, um, where it, it at once uh, promises an additional social connection, which is that you could speak to me from Bristol over VR, and it could feel like we're actually sitting in the same room, and that's great, uh, socially speaking. But also, it's so isolating to wear one of these headsets. And, you know, we've all had the experience of trying out a headset with a friend, putting it on, going, oh my God, this is amazing, giving it to our friend and then noticing what they look like. And we're just, you know, you just sit there and play with your phone while your friend <laughs> has the headset on going, whoa, this is amazing. That's right. And so, and so I think that's where some of the, you know, the augmented reality stuff will, will perhaps add to the adoption of this because it's not truly isolating you from reality. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we can all sit here with our, head, our augmented reality headsets on, but we're still grounded in the real world. We can see each other. We can see what's going on. Mm -hmm. We can mm -hmm. all see that we all look equally is silly yeah yeah um whereas when you're in the virtual world yeah there is an there is an element of antisocial to it yeah and and when a well-designed virtual reality experience also has this um, ability to completely soak up time so i've heard of people where they've been asked afterwards how long do you think you were in there oh probably 20 minutes and you're in there for an hour and a half <laughs> it's like a casino no clocks total no clocks, isolation nothing you, well that's it i mean you total isolation you've got no idea what the light is doing outside uh -huh, it could be uh -huh. nighttime daytime you, you you lose all track of reality mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was that was the point with virtual reality you, you you know you can basically manipulate the brain into thinking you know where it is you can be upside down yeah 
whatever, it's um, it's very easy to, to completely lose a human. And that, that might be the desire of some you know, entertainment applications. Some yeah, of the industrial yeah. ones, you don't necessarily want that. But you do have a side effect that that can happen because you are isolated. Right, right. So speaking of... Um you know, augmented reality becoming ubiquitous, uh, becoming more widespread, new applications getting developed. Um, what do you see in the way of, of software platforms arising? Is it easy at the moment to develop one application and uh, publish it to HoloLens as well as to other AR headsets? Um, do you see that getting easier in the future? Or do you see maybe these vendors uh, cleaving off different parts of the market and making uh, it difficult? I, I, I don't think people will deliberately be making it difficult but it is difficult and it's difficult for various reasons it's difficult for architectural reasons um, it's difficult for software platforms or operating system reasons these things evolve mm -hmm. and and it's a very very early industry mm -hmm. um, to be in and so at the moment it's it's very similar to you know mobile devices which are which are quite mature these days but mm -hmm. you still if you want to write a, a, a well defined and well designed mobile app you do end up actually having to write it differently for each platform. Right, right. And and there's no way around that. Even though there are theoretically ways to port it, there are they don't work as well. Ways. They don't yeah. work as well. They, yeah, really, they, yeah. they really don't. Um, and so you end up, if you want the best experience, you end up developing three, four apps. And, and it's yeah. going to be that way for these devices for some time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you see them working like mobile devices in that they'll, they'll have different um, AR headset operating systems, or is it just going to be sort of app by app? D depends on where you are. I mean, the whole lens is an operating system. It's, it's Windows 10, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so it's running a, an operating system. It's it's a holographic computer, and, and it's it's interesting from that perspective. Microsoft's approach to that because you know they really have challenged you know the norm there in terms of what augmented mm -hmm. reality or mixed reality is because they're basically saying it's you know, fundamental to the devices is an operating system. Yeah, everything is every application is holographic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Others, other approaches are coming from people who are in the pure hardware business, so they're building headsets, they're not building operating systems. Mm -hmm, and they are very mm -hmm. much looking at you know, a device that can that is capable of being run on any operating system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It itself may have an operating system that is, you know, driving it, but the right. the, the displays, Very low level. The yeah, but the information that's coming from it could be from any operating system. So again, it will de it will depend on the vendors, the you know, the bigger vendors in this in the world, you know, whether whether they come into play in this space like Microsoft have, they will no doubt introduce operating systems in these devices that will you know, mm -hmm. evolve very very similar to the mobile devices. And I, I suspect you know, we'll see them in you know, five years time. They'll, they'll look exactly like a mobile device mm -hmm. operating system. It is mm -hmm. a mobile device. It's just a wearable one instead of a, a, right. a, a portable, carryable, pocketable one. Right, right, right. Yeah, the, the watch is a great example of that. It's an, another wearable operating system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think Microsoft has set a really interesting example by making it part of the unified Windows platform. That's right. And, that, and that's the one That's the one example is, you know, we, we're showing on the show floor where you can write one application that will run on multiple devices. It'll run on a phone and a tablet and a HoloLens. Mm -hmm. Different mm -hmm. user experience for each, but same fundamental code. Yeah. And and that will hopefully evolve on the other platforms. You still may have three or four platforms, <laughs> but within that platform space, you will hopefully be able to address the different types of devices that are in that space. Right, right. So thank you again. My guest today is Steve Gee from PTC. It's been thank great you. to have you on. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And if listeners would like to get started with building AR applications, you can visit Vuforia.com and look for Vuforia Studio. That's the web application that Steve mentioned earlier in the program. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com.
If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>